What a blessed day to be together. It is the Father's Day, as all are. We're also celebrating our Father's Days here, and what a blessing that is as well. Let's have our hearts and our minds focused on the Father who has made each of us and the example He gives us from the Scriptures, how to be the kind of fathers that are uh, guiding our families in His way as He is lovingly guiding us in His way as well. Um, The reading that was just done is from when Moses went before Pharaoh. And in a moment, we'll talk about sort of the, the... the meaning behind the, the choosing of this reading. But it wasn't too long ago, I was digging around online and I came across this phrase. In the past two weeks, I've reread the four Gospels of Jesus. I can say without an ounce of hesitation that I believe that conservative Christian is an oxymoron. That is, uh, it's contradictory in and of itself. Conservative Christian is an oxymoron. Now, this was during one of the campaigns and usually when Uh, The political campaigns come up. People want to start throwing around these words like conservative or liberal. Someone's also responded to that. Well, when you read the historical context, there's virtually no parts of the Bible that advocate the conservative view of their day. Someone else pointed out, well, you don't see conservative Christian, but you also don't see liberal Christian or progressive Christian. And then someone said they were going to be Christian anarchists, onward Christian anarchists. So you get all kinds of crazy comments. But it struck me that this person brought out this concept of a conservative Christian being antithetical to what the Bible text teaches. It's not the only one, of course. HuffPost, which is a uh, leftist-leaning magazine, this was taken from December 25th, a Christmas Day uh, posting back from 2016. Uh, Peter Dreyer, one of their uh, journalists, who is a professor of politics at Occidental College and author of the 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a social justice hall of fame, says as people around the world celebrate Christmas, it's worth remembering that Jesus was a socialist. And he goes on and tries to defend that. In fact, he tries to defend his outrageous claim with scripture that he thinks backs up the idea that Jesus was a socialist. And he means by that a 20th century ideal uh, socialist. And that, of course, is not biblical either. Unfortunately, though, this idea is pretty indicative of what many people who claim to be Christians have convinced themselves is true concerning Jesus and his teaching in the Bible. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, what Jesus' teachings were. (laughs) Are you a conservative Christian? Do you think that would sort of define who you are? And I want to talk about what that might mean. And we'll look at Should we be liberals as Christians? Should we be conservative? Should we be moderates? Where should we line up if we're Christians? Interestingly, just before this this study, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who, back when I was in college, would always talk about Jesus. And I wasn't a believer back in college. We'd always talk about Jesus, try to get me to read these books that he was reading. And he was talking to me about why I sort of leaned conservatively. And he said he thought that was strange because he knew me when I was a liberal. And I said, yes, before I came to Christ, I had very liberal leanings. And now I'm tending more toward conservative leanings. And he said, well, my coming to Christ made me become a liberal. (laughs) And I thought that was interesting. And we were set to have another conversation. Unfortunately, he passed away from some complications very young. uh, And so we never did have that conversation. But it got me thinking about the way people sort of label themselves. Are you a conservative Christian? Would you say that's the way you would label yourself? Let's talk about that. Obviously, Jesus did not come to establish any type of political ideology. That is not why he came. But he did teach his disciples to be conservative. (laughs) 
And so when I'm thinking of being a conservative Christian, I'm thinking of sort of the things that Jesus taught about conservatism. I looked up the definition of conservative. This first definition is really speaking of political philosophy or political ideology. That's not what Jesus was about. But the second definition, I'm sorry if that's smaller, uh, the second definition says tending or disposed to maintain existing views, conditions, or institutions. Traditional. Sounds very much like what I hear in the Bible. Have conservative policies, perhaps, or marked by moderation or caution, a conservative estimate, or perhaps conservatively going about something. You're marked by moderation or caution. And I certainly see that as being a biblical concept. In fact, a conservative view of Scripture is not exclusive to the New Testament, but it's been taught by God from the very beginning, this concept of being conservative. Think about Moses' conservative attitude that we just read about as he's dealing there with Pharaoh. He's telling Pharaoh, we need to go out into the wilderness. The Lord has called us out to worship him. And Pharaoh says, well, you can go. Just leave your livestock. I don't want you to have an excuse to just run away. Leave your livestock and you come back. And Moses says, no. Not a hoof shall be left behind. The Lord has told us to bring our livestock, and we don't know exactly which ones he wants us to use until we get there. And conservatively, Moses was saying then, we're going to wait until the Lord speaks before we make our decision, and so we're going to need everything we've got. You have to give us everything. And so he had this conservative view about what was coming from the Lord. What is he going to say? I don't know. I can't just guess and hope I get it right. I must conservatively wait until he tells me. So Moses had that attitude. He was guided by uh, the Lord's Spirit in that. And also led by the Spirit, he taught this same attitude to the people of Israel. If you'll turn with me in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 32 and 33. As he's encouraging the people to keep the law that the Lord has revealed through him, he's just got none going back over the Ten Commandments. But look what he says in Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. That is a conservative view of the Scriptures. I don't have a right to move to the left or to the right of what God has said. He said this. This is what I must do. And I must maintain the standard, the tradition that he laid down. That's a conservative view. You'll recognize that God told Joshua the same thing. Don't deviate to the left or to the right. In Leviticus chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu offer profane fire before the Lord, what it's, it's called profane because it's what he had not commanded them. They presumed when they offered this fire that fire is fire. Whatever we offer to the Lord, he's going to accept. What's most important is the actual sacrifice. Well, for the Lord, it was all important. And he said in that context, I must be made holy. I must be seen as holy before those who come before me. The way we do that is conserving his word and acting in accordance with what he said. Jesus was extremely conservative concerning the word of his father. He said in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 39, we're not going to read all of that text, but he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. By the very definition of the word conservative, he came to conserve what the Lord had revealed. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Then he said later on, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
You'll think about later when he has his charge to the Pharisees and he says, you've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. That's Matthew 15 and verse 6. He also tells them in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You'll begin to notice that there's sort of a pattern that the Lord uh, holds up to responding and doing that which the Father has said. There are many people today who would call themselves Christians, who would call Jesus Lord, Lord, but first off, don't have any idea what the Father has said because they haven't bothered to study or read. And second, don't really care to do what the Father said because it doesn't line up with their view of what religion ought to be. Jesus was calling such people to the carpet. He said, it's not the ones who call me Lord. It's the ones who do what my Father says they must do. I'm the Lord because my Father put me here as Lord, and you will do what he said. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, in Luke 6, verse 46, and not do the things I say? If I'm Lord, then I have the right to command, and you must obey. That's a conservative view of Scripture, from Moses right up through Jesus. And then, of course, the apostles taught very conservatively regarding God's Word as well. The apostle Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, says verse 1 on there, but it's verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's exactly what God himself said in Leviticus 10.3. I will be glorified, I will be made holy by those who will speak the things that I speak and do things the way I say to do them. In Numbers 20, the problem was when Moses went to bring water forth from the rock, he said, must we bring forth water from the rock? The Lord had told him to speak to the rock and he struck it with his rod. He didn't obey what the Lord had said to do. Moses ended up losing his life over that and God said the same thing to Moses that he had said to Nadab and Abihu, or actually to Aaron and the sons, Nadab and Abihu didn't get to, to hear that message, that he needed to be glorified by doing only what God had said. That's a conservative view of the scriptures. The apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 said, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's a conservative view of the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews, perhaps the most uh, telling bit of conservative theology, if you will, conservative doctrine, is found in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Where here, the Hebrew writer makes an argument about the fact that Jesus is high priest, which would be an impossibility under the old law. And so if that's the case, if Jesus is high priest and the argument has been that he is, and all the proof has been that he is, then there's been a change of law. <laughs> Because conservatism says, if the law says this, that's all you've got. And so, necessarily, if Jesus is claiming to be high priest, then he's talking about a different law. So Hebrews chapter 7, verses 12 through 14 reads this way. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. <laughs> if he were going by the law of Moses, he would have to be a Levite in order to be the high priest. Since he's from Judah and yet is claiming to be a high priest, there has been a change of law. Who can change the law of God? Only God can. <laughs> and that's the point of the Hebrew writer. Jesus came as the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant, a new law based on better promises. And he can be a high priest even though he's from Judah and not Levi because God promised him according to the order of Melchizedek that he would raise him up to be a high priest forever. So the apostles 
And then the writer of Hebrews, who's not technically an, an apostle, perhaps, but we don't know for certain, can, can uh, continue to maintain the same conservative view of Scripture. And so that a, a conservative approach to Scripture, when you think about it, is actually essential for what is really faith. If just anything goes, how can we say there is a body of faith? It's just my faith or your faith. In fact, isn't that the accusation that's thrown around among religious people now? Well, that's your faith. You keep your faith. This is my faith. This is what I choose to believe. Well, that's not objective. That's not a standard handed down by God. That's something that I came up with, that I agree with, that I can do. But it's not truly faith as the Bible hands down faith. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 17, and then verses 20 and 21, Sanctify them by your truth, speaking to God. Your word is truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That is a very conservative view. It's only through God's word, God's word being truth, that people will be sanctified and that they will be unified. And when you throw that out, you get what you see out in the religious world today. People that are not unified, people that are not sanctified, people that are not serving the Lord, even though they may claim to be. The Apostle Paul, he says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by whatever I feel like listening to. <laughs> that is not what he said. Hearing conservatively by the word of God, by the preaching of Christ, as it says in some of the other translations. But that's the concept. It's the gospel that brings about our faith in the New Testament. And that's the only thing that will bring about the faith that God uh, has revealed. Moses in the Old Testament had already set up this concept as we already saw in his practice he was conservative. But one of my favorite verses of the old, uh, whole entire Old Testament is Deuteronomy 29, 29 because it establishes this conservatist fact very clearly. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed his will so that we'll know what to do. What he hasn't revealed, we don't know what to do about that. But what he has, we absolutely know what to do, and we must do it. That's conservatism. We will do what he says. As God had told Adam after the, after the fall, he said, you heeded your wife's voice when he had already given him instruction not to eat from that tree. Adam wasn't conservative. He had listened to some other information because Eve had listened to some other information and we see where they ended up. Conservatism, when it comes to hearing and doing God's word, has been handed down from day one. So are you a conservative Christian? I certainly hope so. Uh, you can't truly be a Christian unless you're conservative in your view of the Bible and the way the revelation was made and what it means as far as our obedience. But it is true also, however, that while Jesus isn't teaching political ideology, he did teach his disciples to be liberal. So if someone accuses you of being a liberal Christian, I hope this is what they mean by that. And I hope you'll be able to defend the fact that you are a liberal Christian. This first uh, definition there in Merriam-Webster has to do with education or birth, not part of Jesus' teaching. But the other things, are you marked by generosity, open-handed? Are you a liberal giver? That is uh, certainly something the Lord has taught us to be, liberal in our giving. A liberal attitude is commended by God in at least three areas of the lives of his servants. And the first of those is in a liberal service of love. The Apostle Peter said, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, 
for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's 1 Peter 4, 8. Sounds just like Proverbs 10, 12, doesn't it? That's where Peter got the idea. It is from the Word of God. He is conservative, and so he's continuing with the same teaching. He put it in new language there. But fervent love for one another. Be liberal in your love. Boil over with your love for one another, and that will cover a multitude of sins. Paul said the same uh, similar thing in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Galatians 5, he also said, love is the fulfillment of the law. And really, as you look through Exodus 20, most of the Ten Commandments that aren't dealing with loving God are dealing with loving your neighbor. <laughs> and in fact, uh, Leviticus 19, 18 is where Jesus uh, got his famous quote about love your neighbor as yourself. He's just quoting from Leviticus. God has been saying that for a long time before Jesus came along. Uh, and began to teach that in, uh, in the New Testament. John, ironically enough, the disciple whom Jesus loved, says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. That's 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. You see that uh, Cain did not love his brother. He was a liar. <laughs> Took him out into the field and killed him. But love ought to be liberal, and it ought to be given in a liberal way. Jesus then says, A new commandment I give to you, that you will love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's John 13. Not the only place that's spoken of. 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love, is God's view of love. That ought to be our view of love. It's a very liberal kind of love. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It gives all things. That is the kind of love that ought to be liberal. Consider especially this idea that Jesus came up with. Love your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. He teaches this concept of love for one who is abusing you. Christ is the perfect example, of course. Philippians chapter 2, he came down and he served us. He was willing to be obedient to death, death of the cross for us. And as Paul points out in Romans chapter 5, he did that while we were still enemies. <laughs> he loved his enemies and came down and served us so that we could be brought to God. So God wants us to be liberal, liberal Christians, <laughs> in love for one another and for even our enemies, for those who would spitefully use us. We need to love them enough to teach them the truth. But consider God's teaching on liberality, on the service of giving. In Israel, I love this, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. I want you to understand the mindset that God is building in his people with this simple instruction. And so many of these laws in Leviticus are, are object lessons. He's teaching them deep truths by these simple uh, object lessons, by these things they were to be doing. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, now, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. <laughs> You're giving away part of your field to the poor and the one who's traveling through, who's a stranger. That's part of God's law. It's teaching their hearts to be open to just giving, to be liberal and giving away some things that are theirs. <laughs> You think about the attitude so often in this country is mine, 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 mine. I get what's mine. I hold on to what's mine. And God is saying, 
You, you don't go on the corners of your field. Leave those open. Let people just go through and get those. There are other laws that say anybody just walking through your field can just eat to their heart's content. The food's there. God's the one who's producing that increase, and he's using it to feed whoever wants it. Think about the tithing law. Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. It's a law that's so misunderstood. But I want you to notice the focus here. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied. <laughs> These tithes were stored up and given to those who had none. <laughs> now, some people will see this and say, See, God's a socialist. He set up these socialist programs. That's not at all what he's doing. It's not a government-run thing. These are individuals who are taking of theirs and giving it openly to those who need. It's on an individual level. God was expecting each and every Israelite who had any possessions to be living in this way and giving up of his goods. This is something God was teaching, not forced on them by government. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. One of the great blessings about this particular command, as God is calling them to come up three times a year to the temple and make their sacrifices and offer their goods, is that he was putting everything in their hands they would need. They weren't to go up empty-handed because that would reflect poorly on the God who was exacting the sacrifice, and yet the sacrifice he had put in their hands. Every single time they had something to offer, as we talked about this morning, looking at our own offering, was something that God had placed within their hands for that very purpose. When you look at some of the high feast days and you understand how many yearling bull calves were slaughtered, thousands upon thousands, yearling bull calves, you think about the size these flocks must have been, that they had thousands upon thousands of brand new young baby calves to be slaughtering three times a year on the high feasts. It's an incredible thing to think about, the size of these flocks and herds that God was giving them so they would have enough to live on, to sell, and to do all these sacrifices. God was richly blessing them so that they could richly bless everyone around them. Their hands needed to be open like God's hand was open. We ought to be liberal in the service of giving. That was in the Old Testament. Look at Christ in the New Testament. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart. This is under the Christian Testament. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is Christ speaking through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Give with liberality, give with grace. The whole context of that chapter is the grace of participating in the fellowship of the saints. It's the same word used over and over in different ways as the Macedonians in their poverty were begging Paul, please take our money. <laughs> we want to help these people. And Paul's trying to stop them, it sounds like. And they're saying, no, we want to give. <laughs> we want to be involved in this. It's a grace of God that we can do this. Liberality of their giving. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we see that up close and personal. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They had all things in common. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. What's amazing about that, again, the people that want to use sort of these texts to say, you know, God was espousing socialism, this was individually motivated. This is not someone saying, now you go sell your house, and you bring it and give it to these poor people. Individuals said, I've got land I don't need. I've got a house. <laughs> I can sell this because other people have need. That is a much greater 
love. <laughs> Not when you're forced to do it, but when you make the choice. And so we see the example of Barnabas doing that very thing. We're told the Macedonians gave beyond their means. How could they do that? Sounds to me like they were selling things they had so that they would have money then to give or goods to send with Paul. That's liberality of giving. Ephesians 4, verse 28. I love this verse. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he can go on extra vacations. <laughs> That's not what the text says. That he may have something to give him who has need. What is the focus and the purpose of our work? According to God, it's so that we can have to give to those who have need. Now, certainly, that may begin in our home. We're told that we, who doesn't take care of his own family is worse than an infidel. We can take care of our families. But if we're working well, working properly, God's giving the increase, we're going to have something to give to those who have need, whether they're in our own families or outside. And we ought to be liberal in that giving. Paul himself worked to make tents when he was in Corinth so that he could provide for his needs and the needs of those who were with him. He told the Ephesian elders he had done the same thing in Ephesus. He took care of his needs and the needs of those who were with him. <laughs> Paul was a living example of what he was teaching in Ephesians chapter 4. And we ought to be examples of that in giving as well. So we ought to be liberal Christians when it comes to love. We ought to be liberal Christians when it comes to giving. We ought to be liberal on sharing the gospel. <laughs> Jesus told in Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8, those who were going out, he said, As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Liberally you have received, liberally give. That's the idea. God had placed so much into their hands, and they had so much to give. Paul thought of it this way in Romans chapter 1. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Paul considered himself a debtor. He had a debt to repay because of how immense the sacrifice of Christ was for him. And how he's going to repay that? By telling everybody in the world about what Jesus had done. He was a debtor to everybody. And he went out telling everybody. That's exactly what Jesus had told the apostles to do in Mark 16, verse 15. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. As Paul points out in Romans 10, quoting from Isaiah, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Paul is teaching because he's a debtor and people need to hear. The message needs to get out. There's so much evidence through the Old Testament of God revealing his will so that people can have access to him. We need to be liberal in sharing the gospel. So in these three areas, we ought to be liberal Christians. In love, we ought to be giving love liberally. Our only unpayable debt to all of mankind is love. Christ loved us first so that we could then truly love others. His, the love of Christ compels us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And then he talks about being an ambassador. He's just going out with the kingdom of God to everybody who will listen. He's an ambassador for Christ. We ought to be liberal in giving. It's literally the word fellowship there in 2 Corinthians it's an extension or an expression of love that ought to be liberal among saints. It means we're participating in your suffering. When we're giving you something to help you with that, we're participating together with you. We're in fellowship with that. And so it ought to govern the compassion we have also for the lost in meeting their greatest need, which is spiritual rather than material. Sometimes Christians want to just join these things and give away money, but we ought to be giving specifically for, for spiritual good instead of material. 
And certainly sharing the gospel is the way we do that. I would say it's the greatest expression of both love and giving. It's where love and giving meet is in taking the gospel out. Love for the lost compels us to give them what they most need, the good news that saves them from an eternity of condemnation far from the presence of God. So we ought to be liberal in sharing the gospel, really far more than in anything else we do. It, it's free. <laughs> we can give it away everywhere we go. <laughs> we ought to be doing that. Love and giving and love in giving the gospel. Well, we ought to be conservatives, for sure, <laughs> in our approach to his word and obedience to it. But we ought to be liberals as well, as we've just seen. And the truth is, Jesus taught that we ought to be moderate. Are you a moderate Christian? I hope in this way you will be. Uh, there's a definition there that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's talking about the situation of mediocrity. It's not what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus was talking about Avoiding extremes of behavior or expression. Observing reasonable limits. Interestingly enough, their example was a moderate drinker. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. But observing reasonable limits in the way that we act with people. Uh, calm or temperate. That word temperate we'll see as one of the words that translate this word moderate. Uh, though very much in favor of the measure, he expressed himself in moderate language. <laughs> he was temperate in the way he spoke. And then finally, not violent, severe, or intense. That one may be harder to read. But this idea of moderation is certainly taught by Christ in the Gospels. The Christian life ought to be governed by moderation. Think about God's teaching on moderation in speech, which is really where the definition of Merriam-Webster was going. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. May the Lord help us with that one. I struggle with that one. But we need to be moderate in the way we speak. We need to be helpful to people when we're speaking, and speaking with grace to the hearers. In James chapter 1, James talks about moderation in this way. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a definition of moderation. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's how we get to moderation. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul told Timothy, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. This ties into that liberal giving of love and the gospel. That's what our desire is. It's not to win arguments. It's to bring people to the knowledge of the truth. And so we're going to be moderate about the way that we present our arguments from the gospel. And then Proverb 18, 20, and 21. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Don't you know it? <laughs> Let's be moderate in the way we speak because it will determine so much of the outcomes of our lives. In fact, a man can gain a job or lose a job from the fruit of his mouth. He'll eat by the way he can speak, and sometimes he'll not eat because of the way he speaks. Consider God's principles on moderation in the way that we dress. And I'll go beyond that and say the way we present ourselves. That's what our dress is eventually. In like manner also, says 2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, let the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. I want you to understand that this is not only for women, but this is specifically for women in this context. But you think about Matthew 5, 16. 
sort of the, the heart behind this same concept. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The way we present ourselves, the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we act when we're out in public, all of that is going to be seen. And you better bet if someone knows you're a Christian, they're going to be looking extra hard, looking for a way to accuse. We ought to be blameless in these things. We ought to be moderate in our presentation. We ought to be proper for people who confess godliness. Certainly, women ought to dress that way, and men as well. 1 Corinthians 6.20, we're bought at a price. We ought to glorify God in our body. Speaking of sexual immorality there, but we ought not to be portraying someone who is sexually immoral by the way that we dress or by the way that we act. And Romans 14, verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore. Rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Certainly, we not, ought, ought not to be dressing in such a way or presenting ourselves in such a way that we cause stumbling among our brethren, but we ought not to be causing stumbling among those who are already with a propensity for sin. We ought to be helping them to see more conservatively, more moderately, what a Christian life ought to look like. We ought to be different. We are strangers in this world. One time when I was in college, I was out with a bunch of friends, and there was this guy who was dressed so weird. <laughs> it was just strange. He had on these sort of long shorts and these long socks that were like multicolored, and just something about him was off until we heard him talk. <laughs> we realized he was a foreigner. <laughs> in his culture, that's the way they dressed, but it wasn't like our, the way we dressed we began to realize there were a lot of things that were different about him. The way he spoke, the way he dressed. And then after I became a Christian, I remembered that and I thought, you know what? <laughs> I'm a foreigner here. People ought to look at me and say, that guy's kind of weird. <laughs> His clothes don't look like my clothes. The way he talks doesn't sound like the way I talk. But it ought to be a good thing. As they draw near and begin to hear, they begin to understand why. This world is not my home. <laughs> the things that are important to people here are not the things that are important to me. And so I'm going to dress and act in a much different way. Now, I'm not saying in a way that automatically just calls attention, but it ought to be different enough that people notice it. So often we are attracted to being just like those people around us. Look what happened to Israel when they were attracted to being just like the Canaanites. They got vomited out of the land just like the Canaanites did. We want to be very careful about where our influences are. We want to be careful that we're moderate in the way that we present ourselves as Christians. And consider then, in, in general, God's teaching on moderate living. Philippians 4, verse 5, Let your moderation, your gentleness or forbearance in other translations, be known to all men. Let your moderation be known to all men. What a blessing. Everyone who uh, competes for the prize is temperate, moderate, in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. That's Paul's talking about running the race in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We want to be temperate. We want to be moderate. We want to do this in a way that we're going to be able to finish the race. You go all out. A brother of ours in Brazil went for a 15-kilometer run. He had never even trained, and he got up toward the front where the Ethiopian guys were, and he took off running trying to catch up to them. He literally collapsed at about the third kilometer in. His body went into shutdown. He overheated because he thought he could run the race without having trained and with no moderation. It was a great lesson for him. Fortunately, he survived as a great brother in Christ. Uh, but he had no moderation in his running, and he burned out. That happens. <laughs> we need to be moderate, and we need to run in such a way that we can get that imperishable crown. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of, of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. 
I love that phrase of good behavior. It's from the Greek word kosmios. You might recognize the word cosmos in that. It means orderly. And it's actually the word that was used back in 1 Timothy 2.8 to describe the woman and the way she adorns herself. Orderly, as a woman who professes godliness ought to. It's the same word that's used to describe the life of the elder who's a man. <laughs> it was a, the, the heart is at issue here, not the clothing itself, but the heart behind it that keeps this orderly uh, moderation in living. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 22, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's moderation. <laughs> In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8, Paul uh, said, Having food and clothing with these, will she, we shall be content. <laughs> That's moderation. It's not looking for extremes. And it's just being content with what you have. So God has always taught on being conservative, being liberal, and being moderate. Depends on your perspective. Depends on the realm in which you're talking about. These are not political labels that Jesus was talking about. They're words that accurately describe the disciple of Christ as he serves. Are you a conservative Christian? I hope you are in the ways that matter. Are you a liberal Christian? I certainly hope so when it comes to loving and giving and serving with the gospel. And are you a moderate Christian? You certainly ought to be in the way you present yourself to the world. I'm not talking at all about politics. In fact, Jesus wasn't concerned about politics at all. He's king! <laughs> What king campaigns to become king? Well, you might say that maybe uh, Absalom did and Adonijah, but you don't really campaign to become king. He has absolute rule. All authority is given him in heaven and on earth. He's not got the politic about anything. He just tells you. And he says, this is what you must do. And so as he's teaching us to be conservatives, liberals, and moderates, it's not in politics that he's talking. It's about our lives and how much we're giving for the Lord. The political Pharisees came together with the Herodians in Mark chapter 12 and tried to trick Jesus into taking sides. Which, which side is he going to be on? Is he going to be conservative like the Pharisees or is he going to be liberal like the Herodians? Do we need to pay taxes to Caesar or no? Jesus said, show me the coin. <laughs> and when they did, he looked at Caesar's image and said, okay, pay your taxes to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God as well. He didn't take either side. What happens so often is on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever you do your your social media, your political friends are going to try to trick you in to taking sides. Are you a conservative Christian? That seems like an oxymoron. Are you a liberal Christian? You know Jesus was a socialist, right? They're going to try to trick you into taking sides. Don't do that. Be conservative toward them when it comes to teaching them about how to obey the word. Be liberal toward them when it comes to loving them and helping them with their greatest need. Be moderate toward everyone in the way that you live your life before the Lord. I pray that this kind of a lesson is helpful for you. It's helpful for me to think through these kind of things. We are not called to be political people. We have a king. We have a kingdom that can't be shaken. Maybe you're not a part of that kingdom. We'd love to help you to do that today, to submit yourself to Jesus' rule, to be taken into the kingdom that can't be shaken, a kingdom that's everlasting, a kingdom where your sins can be forgiven and where you can be with the holy God for eternity. If that's your need, we'd love to help you with that. Have you come forward confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Have your sins washed away in baptism? Have you rise into a new life in His service where we can help you learn to become conservative in the right ways, liberal in the right ways, and moderate in the right ways as we serve together in that sense? If you already are a Christian, you belong to this kingdom, are you serving the King? Are you uh, living in such a way that brings glory and honor to Him 
by conserving his word, by liberally giving of the things he's given you to share, by sharing his gospel so others can come to him. We hope and pray that whatever your need is, you'll make it known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your obedience.